I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. Today's episode is all about the low FODMAP diet. Maybe you've heard of it, especially if you're someone that struggles with digestive issues, particularly IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Maybe your gastroenterologist or your doctor has suggested that you try this diet, or maybe you've seen it on Google before. We're going to talk about what it is, how it can be used to improve your digestive health, why so many people go wrong with it, the research behind it, and three important things to remember that you must do if you decide to try it. FODMAP, F-O-D-M-A-P, stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, or sugar alcohols. If you aren't familiar with sugar alcohols, go listen to episode eight, two episodes back on artificial sweeteners, where I talk all about these and why they might be making your gut worse. These FODMAPs are a type of carbohydrate. They are natural sugars found in all foods that can be difficult for many people to digest, especially if you are someone who suffers from irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, inflammatory bowel disease, if you have hypothyroidism, celiac disease, leaky gut, or if you have a lot of inflammation going on in the body. And this is because with these conditions, typically there's an imbalance in bacteria in the gut that hasn't been properly addressed, and the low FODMAP diet helps to reduce the bacterial overgrowth that is in the gut by restricting these foods, the FODMAPs, that feed the bacteria. It not only addresses bacterial overgrowth, but it also can address carbohydrate malabsorption. So if you're someone who has a stressed out gut, you're not going to absorb carbohydrates the way that your body typically would. Now, FODMAPs might be contributing to symptoms such as abdominal pain, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, abdominal distension, and flatulence. So not very fun. Now, how do the FODMAPs trigger symptoms? So when these FODMAPs, when these carbohydrates pass into the colon, they ferment and they create that gas. And that's where the bloating and the gas and indigestion come in. While they're in the colon, the lower part of your intestines, FODMAPs pull water into your intestinal tract and this water and gas build up in your gut, which causes the bloating, the cramping, the pain, diarrhea, and potentially constipation. Now, I want to make it clear that these foods, the FODMAPs, do not cause IBS, but limiting their intake could provide an opportunity for someone to manage the symptoms. So again, they are not the root cause of why someone is having digestive issues, but they can manage symptoms. 
So what can't you eat on the low FODMAP diet? It's a pretty hefty list, and it's often very overwhelming. If you do a Google search, you're going to say, well, what the heck am I supposed to eat? What you will also notice is that these foods are generally nutrient-dense, healthy foods that are typically recommended to improve your gut health, and most people would deem them as being really good for you. But an important thing to remember is that a food can be unhealthy if it's not properly being absorbed in your body. So again, this is very individualized, this FODMAP diet, and it's very important to note that a lot of this will be temporary. It's meant to be a temporary diet to resolve symptoms through a healing phase with the eventual reintroduction. So here's the list. This is a very broad overview. I'm not going to list every single food that you can't have on this diet, but I'm just going to go through the general categories. Legumes such as black beans, kidney beans, black-eyed peas, soy milk, dairy products that contain lactose, which lactose is the sugar naturally occurring in milk, wheat and wheat flours. So you would need to follow a gluten-free diet certain vegetables, some of these are my favorites, artichokes, asparagus, beets, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, certain fruits such as apples, pears, peaches, plums, dried fruits, avocado, watermelon, onion, and garlic. Onion and garlic is in literally everything, and this is where people have a lot of trouble, and it's even harder because these tend to be the biggest offenders. Cashews and pistachios, grains with high fructose corn syrup, certain sweeteners like honey or agave, and then I mentioned the polyols, which are sugar alcohols found in many diet or keto or low-carb products. They are going to be listed in the ingredients list. Sorbitol, mannitol, isomalt, xylitol, things like that. Again, episode eight has more on that. And there are plenty of foods that add to this list that if you eat larger servings of them become not compliant with the low FODMAP diet. For example, 10 almonds is considered low FODMAP, but when you get up to 20, it becomes a concern, especially if you don't tolerate the oligosaccharide group. It's really important that you work with a dietitian who specializes in gut health and the low FODMAP diet, such as myself, because the biggest concern is that if you're cutting out all these foods or you're on any restrictive diet, you're at risk for nutritional deficiencies. And this could make your health worse than it was before if you try to do this on your own. So again, work with a professional. That's the most important thing. So how do I use this in my practice? So the patients that I typically work with are struggling with their digestive health, whether it's showing up as autoimmune disease, whether it's thyroid disorders, skin issues, you name it, but we're treating the root cause. And the low FODMAP diet can be great because it's managing the symptoms, the symptoms like the gas, the bloating, the constipation or the diarrhea, but if somebody has hypothyroidism or leaky gut or dysbiosis, which is an imbalance of the gut bacteria, then we're working on treating the root cause. 
So what I will do is typically have someone do a modified version of the low FODMAP diet. So for instance, if I look at their three-day food record and they're having a smoothie in the morning with banana, milk, dates, and then they're having a snack with apples and cashews, lunch with wheat toast and avocado, and their dinner is cauliflower rice with Brussels sprouts, onions, garlic, then it might be just about simplifying the diet and getting to a modified low FODMAP diet to control their symptoms while we kind of just slow the growth of this bacteria down a little bit, let the gut heal, and and of course we're doing other things in conjunction with this, whether it be probiotics, stress reduction, any sort of addressing of nutrient deficiencies, but it's really a means of calming down the gut so that it can heal. The biggest mistake I see with this diet, whether it's someone that I'm working with or someone that comes to me after having already tried this diet, is that they don't do the reintroduction properly. They'll typically go on the diet, they'll try it, hate it because it's super restrictive, and then they'll give up and just start eating these foods again and they'll say, well, I tried the low-fat FODMAP diet and it didn't help. The reintroduction phase is the most important phase. This phase is basically us adding different groups of the FODMAPs at different times to pay attention to which groups are your worst triggers. So you might find that some of these foods are totally fine for you, whereas some are going to be not okay, especially if your gut is under stress. So I recommend starting with the galacto-oligosaccharides. These are the ones that I typically start a client with. These are going to be things like the white beans, the chickpeas, and the kidney beans. These will give you the most immediate prebiotic benefits, which is pre meaning they feed the probiotics. But many people that I work with also have a lot of anxiety that is linked to these foods. So sometimes they want to start with foods that they know for sure were not a problem for them before we did the elimination phase. So sometimes we'll start there, but typically I like to start with the galacto-oligosaccharides. And then reintroducing foods happens on a rolling six-day schedule. So we do three days of challenging, and then we do three days of what we call washing out. And while my clients are going through this process, they're still following the low FODMAP diet during the entire reintroduction period, aside from the the exposure foods. Now on days one, two, and three, I'll have them consume one serving of a food from the FODMAP group that they choose, increasing the serving size from small to medium to large each day as long as their symptoms don't return. And, And if the symptoms do return, I'll have them make a note for themselves and skip ahead to days four, five, and six, which will be the washing out days. Now, again, they're continuing to eat a low FODMAP diet as they were during the elimination. And then I have them repeat this for each FODMAP group, fructose, fructans, lactose, galacto-oligosaccharides, and the polyols. Now, these three days of washing out is supposed to be enough time to note your symptoms and to identify the potentially problematic foods. And it should really give my clients enough time to reset after a positive or negative experience with a challenging food. But there are some of my clients that will do a little bit of a longer washout period, depending on 
what their transit time is typically like, whether they had a reaction that maybe set them back a little bit, but that's the general guidelines. After the reintroduction phase, we have the maintenance phase, and this involves returning to a regular diet as much as possible and limiting only the FODMAP foods that cause really bad symptoms with that person. Now, eventually, some people might be able to incorporate all or almost all of the FODMAPs back into their diet without any symptoms, and this is often what I see in my practice with my clients is that once we heal the gut or get to the root cause of some dysbiosis or treating SIBO, then they can include all of these foods back into their diet and not have to worry about any sort of symptoms. I do have some clients who introduce most of the foods, but then they'll notice, you know, say dried fruits, for example, that might be something that really exacerbates their symptoms. So they have to decide what's worth it in terms of knowing, okay, I'm going to have this food. It might cause some excess bloating. I might just have to be okay with it. I'm not going to die. There are also situations in my practice where I work with a lot of athletes and we have to consider that physical stress can be a reason why someone might experience GI issues like diarrhea, constipation, bloating, or they can exacerbate and make a gut situation worse. So they can actually trigger leaky gut because it's an excess stress to a tissue. So with these clients, we will personalize their nutrition strategy around bouts of exercise or around intense periods of training where they're optimizing their gut health so it isn't going to hinder their performance. Now I'm going to discuss the research because it wouldn't be a Nutrition Rewired podcast if I didn't support this with research. There are plenty of well-designed clinical trials to support the efficacy of the low FODMAP diet to alleviate gastrointestinal symptoms that we mentioned above, especially in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. One 2016 report in clinical and experimental gastroenterology found that up to 86% of people with IBS saw improvements in their symptoms on a low FODMAP diet. There are a few systematic reviews demonstrating that restriction in the FODMAPs improved overall abdominal symptoms as well as abdominal pain, bloating, gas, diarrhea in patients who have inflammatory bowel disease. And then we also look at the research with SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I have an entire episode on this, and I've talked about the low FODMAP diet, but there is research as it being used as a tool, uh, a very effective tool in reducing the overgrowth, which makes sense, right? Because we know that the FODMAPs are feeding bacteria, and if you have an overgrowth, then the low FODMAP diet will be a great tool to use for symptoms while you treat the root cause of the overgrowth. An area of particular interest to me is the link between mental health and IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, because there has been a decent amount of research looking at the potential for the low FODMAP diet to alleviate symptoms of things like anxiety and depression. Now, I have talked about this so much on my Instagram page and in my blog about the fact that our gut is literally our second brain. And when I say that, I'm referring to the gut brain axis. 
the signals from the brain can have an impact on the gut and then vice versa. Research has shown that 50 to 90% of people who seek treatment for irritable bowel syndrome also have some psychiatric disorder like depression and anxiety. And this makes complete sense because what's going on between that connection, that gut-brain axis, is we have neurotransmitters that are stored in our gut. We have the fact that the vagus nerve connects our brain and our gut on a physical level. And the bacteria in our gut are responsible for creating inflammation or reducing inflammation. And we know that increased inflammation in the gut is associated with increased rates of depression. We do need more research in this area, but it's really interesting just to think about it from a perspective of, okay, so if you're suffering from anxiety, depression, other mood disorders, Don't just look through one lens. It's important to look at the gut and see what's going on and see if there's improvements that could be made there. The research is still trying to define what a healthy gut or healthy microbiome looks like, but we're seeing more evidence that's supporting that somebody with IBS, their gut microbiome looks very different than a healthy individual who isn't suffering from things like stress, anxiety, and depression. And now for the three big takeaways from today's episode, number one is that the low FODMAP diet is not recommended to be followed long-term. It's used as a tool when used properly is part of a gut healing protocol, the same protocol that I use with my clients. This is not the only protocol, but it's a tool and cutting out all of these foods can lead to underfueling, which can actually make your gut issues worse and delay the healing process. So it's not meant to be followed long-term. Number two is that the most important part is to really be diligent about the reintroduction or re-challenge phase. And this is why it's so helpful to work with a professional, because if you don't do the reintroduction phase properly, then you're not going to see the results and you're not going to be able to pinpoint which foods are causing specific issues. Number three is something that I didn't mention at all during the episode, but you don't want to go more than two to three weeks on this diet if you see no benefits. Now, I'm not saying that at two to three weeks you should see complete resolution with your symptoms, but at two to three weeks you should start to see some benefits, and at that point, if you do, you want to stay on it until you see peak level of improvement, and then once you hit that peak, You want to wait one to two months before you go into the robust reintroduction phase. Now, if you haven't already purchased my gut healing book, it's a really great place to start with your health journey. It's full of recipes. It has a free meal plan, tips to improve your gut health, lose weight, balance your hormones, improve your digestion, and so much more. You can go to nutritionrewired.com, and if you're interested in working one-on-one with me, if you're looking for really more in-depth, personalized nutrition coaching, you can also book a discovery call with me at that same link, nutritionrewired.com. Thank you so much for tuning in, and as always, don't forget to share the health.